I'll start it right now. And you know for sure. Okay, let's go. Let's gather around, you rebels. Ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in ear and heart, must ye always resist the Holy Spirit? Look at that over there. That's why I said it. All right. We're ready to go. We're going to continue this week in our parable of the rich man and Lazarus, found in Luke chapter 16, verses 19 to 31. Let's begin with prayer. We ask you, Father, for our time today to anoint it by your Holy Spirit's power for understanding and for <clears throat> teaching and proclamation also of the gospel and that all the good things that we have in your word that are available to us we would have an appetite for this morning. Amen. Let's read it again. Luke chapter 16 verses 19 through 31. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. At his, at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers, so that they may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced, even if someone should rise from the dead. So last week we... Uh, we discussed a little bit why this, uh, I, I qualified why I believe this is a parable and not uh, any other form of teaching. Uh, it, it, we talked about support among scholars. We talked about the way Jesus typically replied to the sarcastic, smart aleck comments by the Pharisees and how the parable was often his teaching format in that particular setting. Um, we also talked a little bit about belief in hell and what that belief uh, those statistics are like even among confessing evangelicals and how surprisingly different the belief in hell is from the belief in heaven oftentimes with a 20% disparity or so uh, and of course we also know when people answer these questions in polls and surveys we don't know who's qualifying as a Christian so I think that there's something to be said for that um, we talked about uh, the rich man last week in particular uh, we talked about, you know, what I said is the central point of this parable is this. Does anybody remember? Does anyone remember that nice little ditty that I gave you last week to remember this by? Yeah. Okay, so, in the afterlife, we live the life we love to live in life before the afterlife, right? In the afterlife, we live the life that we love to live in life before the afterlife. And the point being, there's a certain continuity between this life and the next. And uh, the objection was raised, well, wouldn't that somehow give belief to, uh, give credence to the people that believe that hell is just a sinner's party? And I said, well, perhaps on the surface it would, but you've got to go a little bit deeper than that. In uh, this life, if you love to live your life without God, you're going to get that life in the next life as well. Mm -hmm. And except there, you'll find out what it really means. Mm -hmm. There's a certain sense in which we get, mm -hmm. uh, we wonder in our hearts, we wonder in our minds, how is it that people that continue to resist God, continue to get God's blessings. And we always think of that in terms of God's grace, that He gives grace to sinners. And you know, even those that aren't His continue to sin but enjoy the blessings of God. And that's true. In some ways also, that's already God's judgment on them as well. Is that they continue to live their life in the deception that everything is fine and dandy okay. And they've resisted God and then God sort of gives them over to this belief system that everything is okay. 
And so they spend the rest of their life thinking everything is okay. And then when they die, they find themselves in sudden torment, in sudden, uh, in sudden anguish. So that there is a continuity. There Luke is this continuity. What's that? Luke 16. Oh yeah, Luke 16. We're in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. We're in, in uh, Luke 16, verses 19 through 32, uh, 31. So we talked about that a little bit. And we talked, began to talk about what's the continuity between the rich man and the life he lived then and the life that he found himself in the afterlife and how the two were consistent one with the other. That a life that he now lives in the afterlife is very much like the life that he lived in life before the afterlife. Okay? Because remember, we're talking about life after life, not life after, after death. I think it's more helpful for us to think in that could way. You, could you uh, explain that? Because someone could mm-hmm. assume, well, if I, if I live a hellish life on earth, mm-hmm. a lot of fun games, eat drinking and marrying, that I was going to be in the afterlife? Right. And, and that just goes to the point that I just sort of made a moment ago. That if people, so let's say I'm having this discussion, you're having this discussion with someone, and you say to them, you're going to get the life in the afterlife that you really love now. And I say, right, I love the party life, I love the this life, I love the that life. And I think you want to get as deeper than that. I think what you want to get is beyond that surface level understanding and say, okay, the life you're living now, you're living without God. And you're assuming that in the next life you can continue to have satisfaction without God. My main point to you, Mr. or Mr. Mr. or Mrs. Person that thinks you continue a, a sinner's party in hell is you've chosen a life right now that is completely dependent upon how you define things and how you see things with no regard at all for the fact that there is a God. You've given no thought to that. You live your life as if God doesn't exist. And you're going to continue to live that life after you die. Except you're not going to have this other foolishness that goes with it. You're not going to have the rest of what's with you now. There are no parties and that kind of thing. Those even fun that you have is part of the taste of the good things that God has to offer us. So, yes. One highlight of that point that you're just making, Jesus said in, I think it's Luke 6, 25, He says, Woe unto that laugh now, That's right. for ye shall mourn That's and right. weep. And we'll talk a little bit this morning about the Sermon on the Mount and just refer to it in a particular setting too. So, it is, the, it is, it is real. that whatever, whatever you love here, you're going to get there. And we're going to find out how that... And, and so we looked at some particulars with the rich man, okay? Uh, we looked at how much he loved to have his money shown off and all those other things. And that's important to mention, too, is that, you know, there's, 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 certainly there's no, material, there's no material existence right now for the rich man. He's in an immaterial state. He doesn't have a body. We talked about that. We talked about the sadness and the foolishness of people saying that their loved ones have died or they're doing the favorite thing they used to do. They're gardening in heaven. They're gardening of that. No, they're not. Their body is decaying in the grave. They have no physicality whatsoever. So wherever they are, whatever mental state they're in, it's only a mental state. They don't have a body right now. You could go dig up their grave and see them decay if you wanted to. That's where they are. Sometimes you just want to hit people with that reality when they say silly things like, Oh, my... No, he's not. No, he's not. He's, no, he's not. He's worm food. You know what I mean? He's, his body is breaking down. It's going into the soil. Worms are going to... If, if he's not... Depending on the vault, he's being eaten by, by insects and things like that. That's what happens to the body. There is no body with your beloved right now. Um, of course, one could question the loving approach behind that. <laughs> so, so that material aspect, you know, Gary's talking about that. You don't have a body to party on with. I mean, I guess you could say that, really. So after you die, what body are you going to continue to party on with? You think you're going to just, you know, go to hell or wherever you go into this party? How, how you, where does that come from? And of course, we'll talk at the very end of this. There's a whole apologetic takeoff from this as well, as there always is if we want to look for it. So we saw that um, the rich man, he's in agony now, okay? Uh, much like in the life before the afterlife, he doesn't call on God. He calls on Abraham. He calls on Father Abraham, depending upon his Jewish lineage. calls himself a child of Abraham. And we're reminded from the Scripture that John the Baptist said, don't call yourselves children of Abraham, the ones who are coming to him, you brood of vipers. God can raise up children from, of Abraham from these stones. So he was depending on his ethnicity in the afterlife, just like he was in the prior life. He also asks Abraham. He doesn't even have the, the kindness of spirit yet to look at Lazarus and ask Lazarus to come. No, he continues in his same mode that he was already in of assigning the servant of detail. Have Lazarus come dip his finger in the cool water. Lazarus, whom he had neglected and ignored his whole life as he sat outside his gate. Okay? So he, does, he shows no mercy. He shows no deference at all to Lazarus. Neither does he in the afterlife. 
So we saw these various points of continuity and there's others, but I want to get on to um, this week to uh, Lazarus. I'm sorry. <laughs> we've, we've taken a look at, uh, at the rich man. We, we left off last week with a quote from C.S. Lewis in The Great Divorce saying there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, Thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, Thy will be done. And this is precisely what's going on with the rich man. God has looked at him and said, Thy will be done. And then the rich man asks Abraham to send Lazarus, again, that low-class servant in his eyes, to his brothers. Why? So, so they can avoid eternal torment, right? He so says, send, send him, I, I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Now, in a certain sense, that seems like a noble gesture, doesn't it? I mean, maybe we think for a minute, maybe, maybe the rich man is learning a little bit of something. He knows that his brothers are living the same. They must be the same kind of character he was, right? I mean, he gives away an awful lot here. Send, send it to my brothers so they can repent. He knows the kind of life that they're living. He knows that they're living the same life that he was. <clears throat> Otherwise, why would he fear that they'd end up where he is? Verse 30 tells us that like the Pharisees, the rich man depends on a sign. Okay, verse 30 says, uh, He said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And I think this, this is another thing. Um, he, he has no type of faith, okay? Like the Pharisees. And again, this is why I think that this is uh, a parable that Jesus is telling with the Pharisees right, right in their presence. Demanding a sign. Pharisees constantly and always demanding a sign. That was part of the Jewish problem. They couldn't believe certain things without signs. Abraham tells them the same thing that Jesus told the Pharisees in John chapter 5, verses 45 to 46, when he said to them, <clears throat> So when Jesus, I'm oh, sorry, wrong chapter, 5, 45 to 46. <coughs> do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Okay? He said to them the same things uh, in, in the hearing of the Pharisees. The truth is, if Lazarus uh, went back to warn the rich man's brothers, they would likely have sent Lazarus outside the gate once again and done nothing with him. They would have probably ignored him the same way that the rich man ignored him in his lifetime. How do I say that with such certainty? We know that there wasn't... This is the, this is the wonder of Scripture. You know, you can't even make this stuff up. People that think that Scripture is just... You can't make this stuff up. There was another man named Lazarus who died. And the Pharisees still wouldn't believe even when that Lazarus came back from the dead. Go to John chapter 12, verses 9 through 11. This is absolutely amazing. So this is after, the, after Jesus goes to Bethany and he raises Lazarus from the dead. Another Lazarus, okay? This is a different Lazarus. This is his friend Lazarus. Remember, the, by, by the way, that the name Lazarus means God is my help. So he has raised Lazarus up from the dead and the people are amazed, most of them. And, you know, all these good things that are going on as a result. But then we see over in chapter 9, verses 9 through 11. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of him, many Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Do you realize what this says? This says, because Jesus raised someone from the dead, because this man was raised from the dead, we've got to kill him again. This is how stupid the Pharisees are. Kill the proof. You know, kill the proof, right. Kill the evidence. To think that you can, you know, Jesus just raised him from the dead and they think that they can kill him again. And so angry are they, so jealous are they, that the chief priests, these are the leaders of Israel. These are the ones that offer up the sacrifices. These are the ones that are supposed to be going into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement. They have no concept at all about what the Day of Atonement is about. They have no concept at all about what the sacrifices are about. The chief priests. This is absolutely amazing. So Jesus knows full well. A miracle isn't going to do it for you. Okay? And again, we have another Lazarus to prove it. We have another Lazarus to prove it. Now, I don't know... Um, I would have to look carefully to see the chronology of Luke. And the chronology of John is a little bit different because John isn't really 
chronological, so to speak, strictly speaking. Luke is, is giving a more specific chronological telling, whereas John is much more thematic and doesn't necessarily follow in a specific chronology. Different things come up at different times. So, Jesus is targeting the Pharisees with this parable. And he's revealing that he knows and the Father knows exactly the kind of life they prefer in this life. And this is true of everyone. God knows precisely the kind of life that people prefer in this life. Of each of us. And in the case of the Pharisees, as in the case of the rich man here, it's a life that has no room for God, except as perhaps God too can be a servant to meet the, to meet the rich man's need at any given moment. God too, in this mind, becomes a servant. You know, the rich man was in a certain sense God of his own little world, certainly in his own understanding. And how many people live with the belief in a certain sense that God is there to sort of meet our needs? That God really is a servant. And I think that there's something very powerful in there that the Pharisees, unfortunately, were going to miss most of them. Although I, I trust that some of them got it. But that's a very potent and, and powerful and unfortunate reality for the Pharisees. <clears throat> and then it's, you know, the last words, this is amazing too, the last words that the rich man will ever hear from above, the last words that he will ever hear from other than where he is and where he will end up, because remember we talked a little bit about uh, he's in the intermediate state in Hades. And that that's not the final place. The final place that he'll be is hell. Because scripture says that death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. So wherever he is, it's sort of like uh, he's in suffering. He's getting ready for advanced suffering, you know. <coughs> Just like we talked a little bit about that perhaps Abraham's bosom, as it's called here, or paradise, is sort of the intermediate state for, uh, in the Jewish early thought, for those that die and are going to go on to be in the next life with, with the Father. So, the last words that the rich man will ever hear from above is that the word of God was given and rejected and despised. That's the last thing that he hears from, the, from Father Abraham. If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. What's the significance of that? The last words that this man hears in his suffering is the word of God. And if you reject the word of God and you despise the word of God, that's all there is. There's nothing else. That's sobering. Very sobering thought. In the afterlife, the rich man will live the life he lived before the afterlife and he will experience the torment of that life forever. Because that is the life that he loved in life before the afterlife. Now about Lazarus. Lazarus was disabled and dirt poor. He was laid at the gate of the rich man every day. Whatever his condition, whatever it was that he had, he clearly could not walk. Since he was carried there, the scripture tells us, he was laid at his gate every day. Okay? <clears throat> at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus. <laughs> Remember, this is a parable, so we don't have to ask ourselves too many questions. Like, gee, wasn't there someone? In, in the, I mean, couldn't he, wouldn't anybody else give him any food? I mean, you know, even the people that liked him. I mean, what about the people that carried him there every day? Couldn't they have left him a little loaf of bread? <laughs> you know, have a, you know, have a good day begging. You know, I mean, it's like, it was just like... But again, it's a parable, so we can't get too lost in sort of the details because Jesus is making a much more important point. He was poor and he was disabled and he had sores all over his body. Reasonable to say that he's a New Testament Job. Except I think more humble than Job. Far more humble than Job. Job learned humility, but Job was not really humble to the extent that he was humble too before he was humbled. Something very rhythmic about this whole <laughs> Put this on a CD. Dr. Seuss teaches the Bible. And he knows it, right? Um, Lazarus is just totally dependent. And I think Jesus wants us to get a spiritual picture out of this. And he certainly wants the Pharisees to. The Pharisees would never see themselves as people that, spiritually speaking, are really sitting at the gate of one who can provide everything and are in dire poverty and who cannot walk and are in desperate need. Lazarus knows his need, but he desires to be fed from the rich man's table, the text says. He desires to be fed from the rich man's table. He knows that there are abundant leftovers there. This man, again, has a reputation we talked about last week. He, he's so wealthy that for some reason Jesus wanted to make sure that the Pharisees and others even heard the important point that he wore rich, expensive, cotton Egyptian underwear. 
Okay, we talked about fine linen. He says he's because it's almost a sense of Jesus mocking him there a little bit. Uh, so this guy feasts sumptuously. Every day, feasts sumptuously every day. He eats good, 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 good. And there must be uh, these leftovers. There must be so much food that the, all the owner would have to do is just sort of dump the scraps outside the gate to feed him. And so, so much food it wouldn't even be missed. There's that much. And he also seems to be at peace with the beasts around him, even as Jesus was. Remember, Scripture says Jesus was in the in the wilderness with the beasts. Don't think about that verse. Never really did till going through this. Why does it even say that? I don't think that he was in threat of being torn apart by the beast. I think we see from time to time in Scripture the sort of perfect harmony of what's going on with people in this world that are sort of at uh, they're in a sort of a sense of shalom with all the rest of humankind. Good morning. How are you? Good. Thanks. Uh, he said, we're, we're, we're teaching on the parable of Lazarus and the rich man. This is in John. Talking at this point about what, the, what Lazarus is like. Uh, just making the main point that in the afterlife, you end up getting the life that you loved in this life. So if that was a life without God, that's what you're going to have in the next life. We saw that this rich man is suffering eternally in anguish. And now we're looking at Lazarus, who was uh, a poor guy that was laid at the rich man's gate. Sort of begging for food. And so we see, we see Daniel in the lion's den at peace with animals around him. We see, even in Isaiah, we see, although it's using a lot of metaphor, we talk about the lion laying down with the lamb. We talk about the child sitting on an asp's nest. And we talk about it. We see these things going on where there's a harmony that wasn't there. And I think that that's really, I think that's there for a good reason in Scripture. I think that's showing us something. I think that's showing us something also about Lazarus. It's just at peace with what's going on around him. And these dogs come and lick his sores. And I can just imagine them sitting at the gate there and the dogs coming over and scratching their ears and they're licking his sores. I mean, the text, depending on what translation you have, it almost makes us say, like, oh man, things are so bad. Even the dogs just come and lick his sores. But it's not a bad thing at all. I think these are, in a certain sense, his only friends. Ken Bailey wrote, Lazarus was a man at peace with himself, within his suffering, and managed to live in harmony even with the wild guard dogs around him. That's probably what those dogs were. Okay, this rich man probably had many guard dogs. That's one of the purposes they served. Okay, maybe there's something in there also as well. We see in the New Testament talk about dogs. You know, dogs are considered the Gentiles, the outsiders. So I don't know if there's some perhaps play on words there by Jesus saying that. You know, even even people outside, as Jesus often did, make a point about people outside of the Israelites did things and showed greater faith at times than people inside but I don't think I don't think he's going there um, interestingly historically speaking a grave dating to between the 5th and 3rd centuries BC in ancient Ashkelon where is that? that would be the Philistine territory in the Old Testament I think that's where Goliath may have been from yes. so within the south side of, uh, of Israel of Canaan Brother Gary knows. Okay? Because I didn't look it up. I was hoping I'd find that out from someone. <laughs> I was hoping somebody did know. Um, I was just going to sit and say, yeah, you're absolutely right. But no, I, it's great. You could be right. It could be outside of Leicester for all I know because I don't know that. Um, so so this, this grave site dating to between the 5th and the 3rd centuries B.C. in ancient Ashkelon contains more than 1,300 dog bones. Okay, and the dogs were probably part of a Phoenician healing cult. Okay, part of a uh, uh, um, dogs were were likely hired out for a fee to lick the wounds of people that had these various sores and things going on. And science affirms that dog saliva has some type of antibiotic, which has healing properties. And so the dogs the dogs cared for him even when even when people wouldn't. You know, I wouldn't suggest you let your dog lick your poison ivy or whatever. Anything else? You know, interesting. I have a, a co-worker, and their dog kept coming around to the her, her fiance, just always sniffing the back of his knee. And there was nothing. He's always sniffing. The, it turns out he had cancer. He had a tumor in his leg behind his knee. Mm-hmm. And strange, huh? Mm-hmm. So anyway, we have this. We have this. These dogs coming in, in a certain sense, ministering to a Lazarus. 
Now, in life after life, as, uh, so Lazarus was carried off, uh, was carried by others in an attempt to get a bit of food in this life. In the afterlife, Lazarus is carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. Okay? Lazarus, a true son of Abraham, reclines at a banquet table at Abraham's right side. Okay, and that's what's what it's, we so we get the picture, for example, of Jesus at the Lord's Supper. Okay, because you've got to remember when when they when they reclined and they ate, they would just sort of lean back like this on tables. Okay, they'd be sort of propped up on one thing, and the food would come around. And we know that John was just like right, was laying right in Jesus's bosom. Right, the Scripture says. And so we have this picture of of Abraham just sort of, uh, of Lazarus just reclining in Abraham's bosom. It's this beautiful picture at this, no doubt this. This grand feast. I can't recline like that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was. It looked pretty sturdy to me. So it looked pretty sturdy to me. Um, I took a chance, but I figured, you know, if it breaks, I probably won't have to pay for it myself. Important at this point to note verse 25. Verse 25. It's important that we see this this, this important distinction in here. To make sure that we don't get some idea from this parable that riches are condemned and that poverty is applauded. Nothing in Scripture indicates this. So when we read in verse 25, but Abraham said, Child, remember that in your lifetime, in you in your lifetime, talking to the rich man, in your lifetime, you received your good things. And Lazarus, in like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish there. Now, Again, we could take a liberal theological perspective on this and, and, and somehow suggest that what this is talking about is you know people that live in poverty are obviously going to go to heaven and people that live rich are going to go to hell. It's just the way it is. In fact, just the opposite was understood in ancient Jewish thought. If you were rich and doing well, it was assumed you had God's favor on you. That's why Jesus said, how hard it is for the rich to enter heaven, the kingdom of heaven. And, and the people are like, well, gee, well, who can be saved if the rich can't be? Because they assumed that they had God's favor resting on them. Just like they figured those that suffering must have committed some sin. So this is contrary to their to that. <clears throat> Remember, um, this follows Luke's mention that the Pharisees were lovers of money, okay, who ridiculed Jesus for saying you cannot serve God and Mammon. That's what happened just before this parable. Jesus was saying you can't serve God and Mammon, and he was literally ridiculed for thinking that way. So what then is the point to suppose of Abraham saying this? Well, what's the point of this saying? Why would why would why would uh, Abraham say this to Lazarus? You suppose? Come on, my deep thinkers. Give me something superficial. <laughs> Give me fluff. Give me something. What, what what is intended by this? Do you suppose? I know you want to dig in on this one, Harrison. I see you chomping at the bit. What do you got? <laughs> Maybe that's why no one's answering. They didn't hear the question. Thank you for being honest enough to answer that way. So the question is, what is Abraham talking about when he says to the rich man, remember you in, in this life, in, in your life, you received your good things. And now Lazarus is receiving his good things and you're getting in your torment. So what, what, So if I'm making the point that we don't want to be confused from Scripture that somehow poverty is applauded as a means of getting to heaven, you know, salvation by poverty alone, and that somehow being rich is going to exclude you from heaven. So what? Why is Abraham saying this to him? Yes, Shannon, thank you. Where his heart was seeking comfort? Yeah, yeah, I think, I think that's exactly where his heart was. He, he's merely explaining to the rich man in the way the rich man understood. He considered, the rich man considered wealth and lavish lifestyle to be genuinely meaningful. It defined him. And Abraham is merely speaking to him about himself. He would have thought that Lazarus was living a miserable existence and in torment and anguish. And so he's just, he's just telling it to him in the way that he already believes. He's getting in the next life what he sought in the first life. In a sense, Lazarus received bad things from the rich man. But remember, Lazarus was the one who God helps even in, especially in, so-called misery. Lazarus is receiving the same comfort in the afterlife as he did in life before the afterlife. Matthew chapter 8, verses 10 through 13. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those, <coughs> and said to those, um, sorry, I lost my place here. 
the centurion replied, okay, this has to do with the faith of the centurion that came to see him. Um, let me get to my place that I really want to be because I got my verses a little mixed up. Okay, so Jesus says, <clears throat> when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly I tell you, nowhere in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of the heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place they will be weeping and gnashing in teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. So, so what we see is, again, the same kind of thing. What kind of life was Lazarus living in this life? What kind of life was the rich man? Jesus is saying to these people, there are going to be all kinds of people coming from east and west, non-Israelites. They're going to sit down with Abraham and feast on that day while, while so-called sons of the kingdom, or the, um, how did Jesus say it? Yeah, the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness. This complete lack of depth of understanding and depth of perception of God and his character and who he was. You know, theology and doctrine is everything. It is everything. Because rightly understood and rightly lived, theology and doctrine completely inform our sense of action and who we are and what we are and what we believe. So it's not as if, well, you're all theology and you're all doctrine and I'm all, I'm all, you know, heart. I'm, you know, I'm more of a, I do this and I do that. That's an unnecessary distinction between those two, because in reality they're so they're so uh, intertwined that they, it doesn't make sense to, want to speak of one without the other. Let's observe Lazarus's character as he witnesses the torment of the one who showed him no mercy in life. How does Lazarus act in the afterlife? No doubt the same as he did in life before the afterlife. He doesn't mock the rich man. He doesn't sneer at him in any way when the rich man has the audacity to ask Abraham to send the very one who showed him no mercy at all as the rich man asks, asks Abraham to make Lazarus the vessel of mercy. I mean, think of the things that, he, that could potentially come to the mind of someone, okay, in this particular situation. I say, what are you, haven't you learned anything? Please, I wouldn't throw water in your face right now if I had the chance to. I, you know, where were you when I was sitting outside your gate and all I had were the dogs and my friends? You know, where were you? <clears throat> Interesting. This is verse 26. I think this probably tells us as much about Lazarus as anything that we could possibly know as we see in the afterlife what he was in life before the afterlife. When Abraham says, and besides all this between us and you a great chasm has been fixed. So, <clears throat> the NIV renders it this way. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. The NASB also <coughs> renders it this way. Okay, we lose a little bit in the ESV. You don't catch that nuance of somebody desiring to go from this life, from this place to that place. And what does that tell us about Lazarus? He wanted to go help and give mercy to the one who ignored him in life. Lazarus in life after life is gentle, at harmony with others. He's a soul that he's the same in a sense in the afterlife as he was before in life before the afterlife. So why else would Abraham say, so that even those that want to go to you from here to there cannot? I can see Lazarus whispering into Abraham's ear. I'll go. Let me go down there and bring him something to drink. Look at him. He's suffering terribly down there. You know? What a gracious, gracious man Lazarus was. Even in his poverty. Even in his sickness. Even in his complete dependence upon others. We come to learn certain things in there. Again, Bailey... Lazarus created meaning by what he chose not to do. He was quiet in his days of powerless suffering and he remained silent in his days of power as he listened to his former tormentor demand services from him. And the scripture says in verse 24, chapter 24, verse 17 of the Proverbs, Do not rejoice when your enemy falls and let not your heart be glad when he stumbles. Isn't that difficult though, seriously? How many people... And I would even point this to something as simple as politics. When you see something happen to your least favorite politician, you would know as, as well as I do that part of you rejoices. When something comes upon some misfortune, I don't mean getting sick or, you know, ah, you know, that political cancer, you know, that they got cancer and then it's a good... No. 
anything that happens, some bit of news that exposes them, you find out something about them. Okay? There's a part of us, and I assume uh, maybe some of you have matured past this, and, and that's good, but I don't know about you, but I have to sort of hold back myself. I have to say, I have to rebuke my own soul. Okay? So, for example, when um, I can think back to a specific, this guy Anthony Weiner, when he was caught. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, sexting young girls. There was a part of me that thought, you know, good, that'll shut up some of the people on that side or whatever. There you go. I, what are you going to do with that now? You know what I mean? My first thought was not a thought of mercy. And, 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 and wow, man, that, that guy's, that poor guy is, he's in the throes of serious sin, man. He needs serious help. You know, no. Most of our thoughts, if I think if we're honest with ourselves, do not go there. Am I wrong? Can I get an amen to your filth? <laughs> yeah, it is. It's just, it is filthy. It's unclean of us to think of that way, and yet, and yet, I, I would suspect that many of us do. I would suspect that many of us do, and we're surrounded by that in the culture. We see rejoicing over the enemy all the time, and this is why. Isn't this why people become, in many ways, I'm going to touch a nerve in you. Isn't this why some people become so? Um, addicted to either Fox News or CNN or whatever angle you come from because in those talk shows there was a constant sort of I gotcha and we celebrate we, 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 it's like we, we in a surrogate way we celebrate in that gutchiness you know uh, where somebody's exposed for this or exposed to that or something happens to this person or that person Harrison Yes. 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 Oh, absolutely. Yep. And they get blown out of the water, and you're like, yes, you know. I mean, I mean, there's a because there's a part of us that wants to sort of celebrate truth, but are we celebrating truth at that point, or are we celebrating the point that that guy just got shamed, and he just got, as I said last week, remember last week when I was teasing you, and I said you're free to disagree with me before I blow you out of the water, kind of thing, right? So. Yeah, I do think that there's a little bit of that in all of us. And we need to be very careful when somebody that has hurt us deeply. I mean, think about Lazarus sitting at the gate of this rich man every single day, living that life, getting carried there, and neglected and ignored by this guy. And then he sees him while he's at Abraham's side, full of all kinds of food. He would have gladly, he would have gone down and given, he would have gone down and given the rich man food in a minute. I think without even thinking about it. Send me, Father Abraham. I'll go. As is other people probably in that case that would be willing to go and bring some relief. I mean, if we were allowed to see such a vision, and I don't know that we would actually be. Um, I remember Spurgeon saying something about... I'm going to get this wrong a little bit. <coughs> But he was preaching and trying to make the point that, you know, those of you, you know, your, your mother raised you as a child about the things and the faith. She taught you God's law. She taught you the gospel. And, you know, in the end of something like that, she's going to applaud your condemnation. You know what I mean? And uh, I, I, don't, I don't think that's the case. I, I, I mean, I think Spurgeon was using a little hyperbole to make a point, but... I can't imagine. And I think he was trying to make the point that the glory of God will be so magnificent, so important to us, that yet, that just being with Him and being uh, wanting to see the fullness of the satisfaction of um, everything's being said and done and dealt with, I find it hard to believe that a mother could applaud their own child's condemnation. You know, I once thought that was pretty cool, but I don't agree with it so much now. Maybe it's from reading this. So... <clears throat> As it says in the Aramaic Bible, it says, When your enemy has fallen, do not rejoice. And when he is overthrown, let not your heart leap for joy. Let's take that to heart. And be serious about it. Look at it. Okay, Jesus' point, again, is not that the rich go to hell, the poor go to heaven. If we go over to Luke 6.30, okay, the same book, and we see Luke's version there of the Beatitudes. Quickly we see, Give to everyone who begs from you and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And that is not where I wanted to be. Let me go back a little further. Hey, woe to you who are rich now. You have received your cons- consolation. Woe to you. You would refer to this before, brother. Woe to you who are full now. You shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now. For you shall mourn and weep. 
Woe to you when people speak well of you, etc., etc. Why? Because that's what they're living for. And if that's what you're living for, woe to you. But if you go back a little bit more. Blessed are you who are blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who weep, for you shall laugh. Well, is this a contradiction then? I mean, what does the text say here? The text says, Blessed are you who are poor. What is Jesus saying? And this this speaks to the larger understanding of the Beatitudes, by the way. Because if we look at the Beatitudes as a prescription of ethic behavior and what its rewards will be, we see the parable we see the Sermon on the Mount completely wrong. The Beatitudes are not at all about do this and get that. I don't believe. Yes, Susan. Am I going back to the blessed of you who are poor? Wherever you want to go, we're with you. This is like poor in spirit. Yes, where does it say that? It doesn't say it. Right. But it's implied. It is said that way in the other Gospels, isn't it? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for this is the kingdom. Yep. So, it doesn't say it that way in Luke. And you wonder why, right? Why wouldn't it say it that way in Luke? I mean, Matthew and Luke probably both borrowed from the same source, from Mark or Q. If you know what that means, don't worry about it. Um, but I still think that the same point is relevant. One's Life interpreting in the, the other. I'm sorry? I say one's interpreting the other. The one that says, blessed are the poor in spirit, mm-hmm. is really an amplification of what it means when Jesus says, blessed are the poor. He's not talking about financially or materially right. poor, but they're poor in their in humility. Unless that way. Unless Luke's emphasis is different enough, as we see here also in this particular parable, that he's making a different point altogether. Remember, I talked a few minutes ago about the, this idea that the Jews believed if you were rich and you were well off, you were considered blessed. But the Beatitudes, Jesus is making a very important point. Jesus says things are not at all the way you think. Things are not... Just because you mourn, that doesn't mean things are bad. He said, in the kingdom of God, the ones that mourn are going to laugh. Blessed are you who mourn. Blessed are you. It's not the same as is the way you're seeing things all the time. You look at the poor as if they're not blessed, but I'm telling you, no. Blessed are the poor. There's a blessing in there for people that never would have been thought of blessing. There's a reality that says the kingdom of God is not like the kingdom of men. When we look at the outside thing, we look at just superficiality, we look at only the physical things. Jesus is continually teaching them that you've got to understand things much deeper about the kingdom than you have understood them. So I don't even think that this has to be an assumption or one translating the other. I think Luke chose this particular emphasis for a reason. He's trying to teach the life in the kingdom just like with Lazarus. Lazarus was a child of the kingdom. Look at how he lived. He was abundantly blessed. He had the presence of God. God is my help. And so I think the point of the Beatitudes is not sort of a prescription for this is how you should behave in the kingdom. I think we get it all wrong if we think of the Sermon on the Mount as ethical teaching only. I'm glad you said only. Mm-hmm. Because um, I agree with you, the emphasis of the Beatitudes mm-hmm. is what it looks like to be a child of the king, king right. living yep. in the kingdom. <coughs> but he also does say in Matthew 20 that unless your righteousness exceeds this righteousness of the scribes and mm-hmm. Pharisees, you can't enter that kingdom. Right. And therefore there is this uh, uh, ethic that is mm-hmm. to accompany the individual Christian uh, in relationship to their kingdom life mm-hmm. by and believing in Christ. <coughs> yes. and, and we see that in Luke 16. Mm-hmm. The ethic of the rich man mm-hmm. was a faulty ethic that didn't respond to grace properly. Mm-hmm. But the ethic of Lazarus was one of humility, mm-hmm. of probably righteousness and godliness because he didn't speak out yeah. probably. And in that, his ethic was one that was of a child of the kingdom. Right. And he receives grace where the rich man wants grace, but he can't receive it anymore. Mm-hmm. And in one sense, the, the thought came in my mind about Revelation <coughs> where John says there's no more delay. Mm-hmm. And there's no more delay for the judgment of those who would who would be like mm-hmm. the rich man. Mm-hmm. There's a certain point, a cutoff yeah. point. Yep. And he had Lazarus right on his doorstep demonstrating what a child of God looks like mm-hmm. every single day. Yep. And he didn't respond properly. And, 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 right. And if you think of the kind of people, thank you, the kind of people that are looked down on in this world, you know what I mean? Those would have been looked down on that world. Blessed are the peacemakers. Are you kidding me? Judas didn't believe blessed are the peacemakers. Judas wanted war against Rome. 
You know, that's why he wanted Jesus to be that conquering, victorious thing. Jesus says, "Man, the kingdom is not like you think about it at all." You know. Okay. So Lazarus was a child of the kingdom in life before the afterlife, and now in the afterlife he remains a child of the kingdom, just as the rich man was a child of the world in life before the afterlife and remains so now. A final point about the main point. Go back if we go back to sixteen sixteen for a second in Luke, just before the the portion before the parable. We read, The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone forces his way into it. But it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. The Pharisees, who meticulously kept the lesser things of the law, never thought that Jesus' words pertained to them. Never. But we saw here what happened with with the words that Jesus gave when he talked about Moses and the prophets. We look at Galatians 5.14. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. See, the Pharisees did not love neighbor because they did not love God. This rich man did not love Lazarus because he did not love God. The Pharisees, for all their constant exposure to the law written on tablets, never really heard the law and the prophets. They never heard it. They never heard them. Therefore, they would never believe, they would never repent, as we've already mentioned, even if one rose from the dead. Yes? What did Jesus say that the law is uh, consummated in these two commandments? Yeah. To love the Lord your God and to love your neighbor That's right. and yourself. Upon these hang all the law and the prophets. That's right. It's impossible to do one without the other. We cannot say, as John pointed out in his epistles, we cannot say we love God if we don't love our brother. It's not possible. Or we need to take a look at what's going on with me. You know? Because I, I don't see things necessarily as black and white as sometimes we like to make them. I do think that we can see people in a state that says, man, that does but but we can find out spiritually what's going on with a person although it may very well be that they're just not in Christ notice in scripture also I thought about this the other day notice in scripture that Jesus Jesus never appears to anyone but his disciples after his resurrection did you ever notice that in scripture Jesus never appears to anyone now he was physically raised from the dead Jesus never appeared to anyone but his disciples after his resurrection, he doesn't. Re- it doesn't. Scripture doesn't record him re- uh, appearing to a single unbelieving Pharisee. He doesn't go appear to Pilate. He doesn't say on any of these things. If they wouldn't believe him in life before he died, they're not going to believe him even after Jesus rose from the dead. He never goes to anyone. This, uh, of the five hundred people, these followers that saw Jesus after he was resurrected, he never appears to an unbeliever. That's pretty amazing. That's pretty amazing. And there's a reason for that. Because they still wouldn't believe even if he did. I've got a co-worker that will often say things like, you know, if God ever came down here and saw what's going on, and I just want to say, man, your, your image of God is so so lame. I mean, what do you pray to? The mirror every morning? What are you thinking? What could you possibly be thinking? I said, well, of course he knows what's going on. No, I mean, if he was really here and saw things. And I'm going to say, oh, you mean like if he saw your heart? If he saw your racist comments? This guy really thinks he's above... It's amazing this guy thinks he's above others. If he saw your sexism, if he saw your chauvinism in the workplace. And again, I, I, you know, I'm not his judge. You know, Pat, uh, Charles Finney said that there had to be a produced excitement mm. in order to get man to respond to the message of the gospel. It doesn't get any more exciting than mm-hmm. someone rising from the dead really? to convince another person. Yep. And that still can't. No. If, can't, the, if, uh, the, if, if, if proclaiming the gospel, if you have an unbelieving person in your life you know, that supports you, and you proclaim the gospel to them in life and deed every day, and they don't believe, if you were to sit up in your coffin at your wake and preach the gospel again, they still wouldn't believe. Mm-hmm. They still would. That's what the scripture says. If if your brother, your friend, your wife, your husband, they preach the gospel, they share the gospel, they share the good news with you, heard it from other people. If you attended their wake and they sat up in their coffin and started pre- preaching the gospel to you, you would not believe. You would not repent. That's very important. I Maybe mean, nothing, nothing else important enough that if nothing else were taken away from this parable, I think it would be this. Because after all, this is what the Pharisees neglected was the word of God all the time. 
Jesus even said that to them, to them at one point. I think it was to the Sadducees, maybe to the Sanhedrin. He said, you know, you know, you neither know God nor the power of the Scriptures. You neither know the Scriptures nor the power of God. You don't know the Scriptures. Can you imagine saying that to one of these front-lit-wearing, Scripture-repeating, you know, they had to memorize large portions of Scripture, and Jesus said, you don't know the Scripture or the power of God. That's why they crucified Jesus, by the way. Crucified Jesus for being true and for representing God truly. They crucified Jesus because he was the exact representation of the image of God. They crucified Jesus because he was God. That's why they crucified him. Because he was divine. We can be like, we want to think about ourselves as we close. What kind of people are we? We can be like the rich man without being rich, can't we? I mean, what do we consider to be our riches? Our prestige, our good looks, our being sexy, our being attractive, all the things the world sort of preaches to. And I think it's important that every self-indulgent that we have in any of these areas is potentially a neglect of neighbor. I was thinking about that in the wee hours. I had this in the wee hours this morning. I was just laying in bed awake. Any neglect, any time that we self-indulge an idol, I think, I fear that we neglect our neighbor somewhere at the same time. So if it's if it's uh, an overabundance, if, if if we're given to an overabundance of eating, very good chance we're neglecting somebody in food. If we're if we're over if we're given to an overabundance of electronics, of cars, or whatever, there's a very good chance that we are neglecting someone else in our self-indulgence. Is that fair to say? I think it is. I do, I would just challenge you with it anyway. And those things are an illusion in the end; they mean nothing. What we are in this life, we continue to be in life after life. And the best way to answer this is to ask whether or not we are truly people of the Word. Are we abiding in the living Word? Are we abiding in Christ? It's impossible to abide in Christ without abiding in His Word. You can't. You can't. You will be... Um, I suppose to some extent you can live that way, but you'll be like these... You know, in the modeling world, these... Unfortunately, these uh, models are trained to be anorexic. And, and in some parts of the world, having literally no flesh on your bones is considered uh, beautiful for modeling, right? You've seen this. You've seen these things in the news at time to time, these basically anorexic models. I suppose to some extent we can be anorexic Christians to a certain extent for a while. But you seriously have to consider whether or not you know, if we don't recline, if we don't recline in Jesus' bosom in this life, why would we want to recline in His bosom in the next life? Right? And then, lastly, we only have like a minute. Um, how does this apply to the prosperity gospel? These are just things to think about. Why is this so very wrong with it? And how should we approach it? How should we minister to those who aren't in present ruin who once believed in that madness? What do we learn about interacting with the occult? You got friends that go to mediums and family that go to mediums. I do. They go to speak to people that claim they speak to the dead. What in this parable is useful to instruct us as to how to speak to those who seek signs? And then finally, since apologetics should be an exercise in loving our neighbor, what does this teach us about love? Okay, I think that our apologetics, I think that the way that we minister to people says an awful lot about what condition we see them in and if we're paying attention to their condition at all. And that is what we have time for. So, could we have... Uh,